Good morning, all. Before we get started this morning, I want to uh, bring a note of thanks from Bruce Clutter. Uh, most of you know what happened. Um, Bruce, a week ago, two weeks ago yesterday, went in the hospital in the ER with severe stomach pain. And after about 12 hours in the ER, they discovered that he had a burst appendix. And uh, so they did surgery immediately, cleaned that out. And he had all kinds of complications after that, mostly um, digestive uh, in follow-up. He wasn't able to digest food. And so uh, earlier this week, they were actually talking about going in and doing a second surgery, which, of course, nobody wants to do. And he could have had the same complications with the second surgery. And at that point, uh, Bruce agreed, you know, we need to ramp up the prayer support and get some more prayer for him. The elders had been praying for him, and some of you who knew what was going on had been praying. And so yesterday, I go to see Bruce, and uh, he had made significant progress. And uh, uh, then later, he texted me and said, I'm going to go home tomorrow, which is today. So here we are two weeks and a day after he went into hospital, and after the service today, Lynn and the Clutter clan are going to go up and have uh, and spring him from St. John <laughs> so he can go home. But specifically, Bruce wanted to thank you for your prayers and give the glory to God. So let me read a little bit of what he sent via text to me yesterday. Can you please update those who have been praying for me? That's many and most of us. I have such deep gratitude to the Lord for his healing presence during these past 16 days. I sense that prayer has played an extremely significant role in my healing and progress, as significant as the excellent medical care. So I said, Bruce, would you like me to give that kind of report at the beginning of the sermon today? He said, yes, I do have an unusual and deep sense about prayer related to this. From my personal contact with the Lord, Lynn, my family, the elders, the prayer chain, my sister's prayer group in Colorado, and then even the surgical resident assigned to me who told me he privately prayed for me. Bruce told me that at one point uh, uh, this doctor was leaving and uh, Bruce reported to him later that he had felt better after this visit and, and, and the doctor said, well, yeah, I prayed for you as I was leaving. And so it's the power of prayer and it's glory to God. And, uh, you know, it's hard to hang on to hope when things are dark. And things really, there were some stretches in this last couple of weeks where things were really dark for our brother Bruce. And uh, he was hanging on, but he was kind of hanging on, you know, by his fingernails on the edge. It was very difficult for him. And I believe that the Lord was faithful to meet him in that place, and that's what Bruce reports. And I believe that in some ways that it's really difficult for us to understand, but our prayers had an impact, and God moved in response to our prayers. So thank you. And actually, believe it or not, this does have something to do with this morning's message because here we are on the first Sunday of Advent and the theme is hope. We see in uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. So here we are on this first Sunday of Advent when the theme is hope. And as we begin this season of anticipation, I want to think about what it means to hope. Waiting is hard. You know it had to be hard on Bruce these last couple weeks to wait for him to begin to feel better. And hope, if you think about it, always involves waiting. Waiting involves time. If no time passed, 
you wouldn't be waiting, would you? Hope is harder still when you have to wait for something you really want or really need, something you're really looking forward to. And the longer that you wait, the harder it is to hold on to hope. That's just reality. That's just our frail human nature. The harder it is to hang on to hope. Did you catch that in our Advent liturgy this morning? For more than 400 years, the people of Israel waited on the Messiah. 400 years. That makes the time that you spend waiting at the driver's license bureau in line or the post office or waiting to get through the bottleneck on the expressway or any of the lines that we wait in makes it seem a little bit shorter, doesn't it? 400 years. When we compare it to 400 years waiting for redemption, even the really important things in our lives, and I'm not minimizing how hard it is to wait on those important things in our lives, like waiting to overcome an illness like Bruce experienced, waiting for a loved one to come to Christ, you've been praying for years, those things look a little less daunting. Although I do have to say that waiting in an emergency room can certainly seem like 400 years. (laughs) Or waiting for the kids to clean their rooms. That can seem like a long time. We don't like to wait. Now some of us, like me, are less patient than others. We live in a microwave, fast food culture. We want things done now. We like drive-through lanes, as long as they're fast too. We don't want to work to earn money. The old-fashioned way, that just takes time, doesn't it? But we want it instantly, like in gambling or the lottery, which of course is another form of gambling. We don't want to lose weight over a period of time through diet and exercise and lifestyle changes. We want a pill that will make those pounds go off magically and fast. We don't want to allow the Holy Spirit to develop spiritual maturity over a lifetime. We always want shortcuts, don't we? In pretty much anything, we want shortcuts. The comedian Stephen Wright once said, I took a course in speed waiting. Now I can wait an hour and only 10 minutes. He also once said that he bought a microwave fireplace. You can spend an evening in front of the fire in only eight minutes. It's funny because, you know, we want everything fast, don't we? Even when it comes to relaxing, which we often need, but ironically can't seem to find the time to do. I don't care how. I want it now. But the Word of God tells us that for certain things to happen in time, apparently the time must be just right. Or as Paul wrote to the Galatians in the passage we read right at the beginning, the verse we read, it must be full. It seems according to Scripture that at just the right moment in human history when God's providential oversight of all the events in the world up to that time had fully prepared people for the incarnation, fully prepared them for the ministry of the Messiah, fully prepared people to hear the message of the gospel, That's when the time was full. And so what happened? God sent his son not too early, not too late, at just the right time. We know the time was right because the word tells us so. And we can speculate a little bit as to why the time was full just then as opposed to some other time before that or sometime later than the 2,000 years ago when Christ was born. Some scholars will point to the conditions in the Roman Empire which made the spread of the gospel possible in ways that really would have been impossible before that first Christmas night. Things like the vast Roman road system 
helped people get around. That helped the scattering of the saints uh, when persecution began in Jerusalem so they could get around the Roman Empire. Things like the Pax Romana, that's the Roman peace. The fact that there was peace in much of the world, even though it was a brutally imposed peace in many places. Other commentators note that it seems the time could not possibly have been full very soon after the fall. In other words, after Adam and Eve introduced sin into our world. Because it takes time for people to see their need of a Savior. It takes time for people to try out all the other possible means of salvation. In those 4,000 years between the fall and the coming of Christ, people had, how, had they'd find a lot of other different ways. They tried many different ways to attain happiness and to overcome sin, but they all failed miserably. So scripture reveals that t- time was somehow less than full before the night that Jesus was born. And it was full that night, not a minute before. But the truth is, we can only know for certain what the Word tells us. And the Word of God is clear that God has appointed, He has designated times and seasons for pretty much everything in history. This is God's, again, providential working of His purposes, not just in human history, but how about this, in our individual lives. There's a right time for everything in our individual lives as well. Paul's not suggesting here that God is sitting here watching helplessly while things just happen, waiting until the conditions are just right before acting. The truth is revealed to us in Scripture is that God himself is the one who brings about the necessary conditions and then acts decisively when those conditions are perfect and right. And all of this is brought about according to his purpose and his perfect timing. The fullness of time does not merely happen, but God brings it about. It is the date set by the Father. The word is full of references to the appointed or perfect or fullness of time. There's the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah. Now Abraham, we remember, had been promised by God that he would be the father of a great nation. One problem, he was old, and he had no children, and he just got older. Anybody here can relate to that, just getting older? So he waited, not really all that patiently, actually, if you know the story. He waited on the fulfillment of God's promise. And then we read in Genesis chapter 18, beginning with verse 10. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Sarah and Abraham were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Do we respond sometimes that way to God's promises? We may not laugh. We may scoff. We may say, really? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time. So there we see it again. There was an appointed time. At the appointed time next year, and Sarah 
will have a son. So there was an appointed time. And it didn't make sense to old Sarah or to old Abraham. And sometimes, even often, that appointed time does not make perfect sense to us, too. I'm sure we can all think of things that we waited for and hoped for, and we just didn't understand God's timing. It might seem slow in coming, even if we've heard a promise like Abraham certainly did. The prophet Habakkuk was helped to understand this when the Lord spoke this in chapter 2. For still the vision waits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now this is a word to the prophet. Hey, there's an appointed time. It hasn't happened yet. Don't lose heart. Hang in there. It's going to happen. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. From our perspective, it's a delay. But from God's perspective, it isn't. We're going to look at that idea here in a minute. We see the same idea in many, many verses in the New Testament. There was a perfect timing. There was a right time, a time that was full for everything in Jesus' life and ministry, everything in the lives of the early church. Even the demons seemed to know something about this, but they didn't understand perfectly any more than we do. They spoke this to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. What do you want with us, Son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So they seemed to know something about this appointed time kind of thing too. Of course, Jesus didn't listen to the demons and he cast them out of the man anyway. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 18, where Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. We read in John chapter 7, verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully so again, we see that idea of the fullness of time. And then we see in John chapter 7, verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. Later in John, apparently this wasn't true anymore. Apparently, the time was full, because we read in John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father. And then we read in John chapter 17, verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and this is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So there are also things that Jesus referenced that require the perfect time. When we read in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, it says, Take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. We see all kinds of passages in Scripture. We see the same words even in uh, Ephesians that we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 that we read at the beginning, the word fullness of time where uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So here in Galatians, what we see is the fullness of time referring to the first coming of Christ, the first advent. And in Ephesians, the reference in the passage that we just read to is to the end of time when Jesus will unite all things in him. But in both instances, the fullness of time means the time is right. There is a plan. It's not an accident. It doesn't just happen. And what happens? Hope is fulfilled. That's a key phrase that we see in, in the Ephesians passage we just read, which helps us understand this concept even more. So we noted that we can speculate why time is full in one time or another, but we see through a glass darkly. We only partially understand these things. There are certain things that were true in the world when the time was full that were not true before that, and we just have to say, okay, some of those things we can see, some of those things we can't. But the most significant element in the fullness of time is that this is God's plan. This is God's plan. Let me read those last two verses from Ephesians chapter 1 that I read a moment ago. Let me read them again. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God has a purpose, and God has a plan, and that plan includes his perfect time for everything. And when God's purpose is fulfilled, the fullness of time has arrived. God does nothing too soon, but he foresees the end from the beginning and waits until he's made everything ready, not just ready, but perfect for implementing his purpose. Part of our struggle here, as the frail human beings that all of us are, part of our struggle with waiting and hoping is the element of time itself. The waiting that time involves and how hard that often is. And we could go around this room and we could cite reasons why it's hard for some of us to wait for what we're waiting for even right now. Not just the perfect time. Of course, we don't always understand that either. Why this time for something important is better than some other time perhaps a time that we might think would be better. Why not now? Why not now? Or we want something hard to be over now, not some other time. But pondering things about God and his relationship to time, how he views time, may help us a little bit with this. Sometimes they're the kinds of things that can make your head hurt. So get ready. If you have some ibuprofen, you may want to pop it now. I enjoy sci-fi movies or TV shows that deal with time travel. That's a fascinating concept to me because the implications of moving through time are very interesting, fascinating, thought-provoking to me. But what thinking about the truths that Scripture does reveal regarding God and time can help us grasp a bit more fully the greatness, the majesty, the awesomeness of our great God. And in that, perhaps it can enable us to trust him more even when we don't fully understand. One of the things that's frustrating to me, to us, I believe, is that we don't like to wait, as we mentioned at the beginning this morning, and we want to hang on to hope. Even though we don't like to wait, we want to hang on to hope. But the longer we wait, the harder that is. 
God is not, as we noted, a microwave God, though he certainly could be if he chose to be, but for his plans and purposes, he knows what's the best time. He's more like a slow cooker or a crock pot. By our understanding, his works are slow and they're steady. By his, they're right on time. They're perfect. But here's the thing that's not really possible for us to fully understand. God lives in an eternal now. Think about that for a second. This is where your head will start to hurt. Past, present, and future are always now for God. God is in that moment when I was born, now. When Dallas was born. When Steve was born. When Jim Grinnell was born. God is in that moment now, even as he's here in this moment with us, even as he's in the moment when I breathe my last breath. Wow. Does that make your head hurt? It makes my head hurt. But it's what scripture, I believe, teaches about our great God. Past, present, and future are always now for God. So as Peter tells us, he's not slow, he's patient. Time is linear for us, okay? Consider this timeline of the life of Ben Franklin. There's yesterday, there's the things that happened along in his life, there's a few minutes ago, there's now, and there's tomorrow. There's one thing after another, year after year, so we can chart it on a line like this. We could all do a timeline of our own lives like this. I was born here, I went to kindergarten here, I went to high school here, I graduated from college here, those kinds of things, right? Of course, there's, if you think about it, and this is another head-hurting kind of thing, there's not even really a true now for us. Think about it, because as soon as we recognize something that's happening now and a thought about something flits through our mind, it's actually in the past, isn't it? Yet to God, as Scripture says, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. When we think about God's creation, we tend to think of the world that we live in. We tend to think of the vastness of space, the tiny intricacy of his creation in the world. We think about the majesty of his creation, the mountains, the oceans, things like that. One thing we seldom think of in terms of God's creation is time. God created time and space and matter. Now, we think of the space and matter when we think about God's creation without often thinking of time as among those things that he created. But time is one of the things that God created. Someone once said that time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. Now, wouldn't that be confusing? And that's true, of course, but we remember that nature itself was God's creation. You know, multitasking is a big thing these days. You hear about that a lot. But many studies have shown that none of us, not a one of us, is nearly as good at multitasking as we think we really are. We focus best on one thing and one thing at a time. So that's why when I'm in Bible Bowl and I want the kids to pay attention to Coach Bill, pay attention, right? Okay, so I'm going to do that to all of you today. Pay attention, because there's only one thing you can do at a time. You can't be surfing the internet on your phone and listening to the preacher at the same time. We're not that good at it. We might think we are, but we're truly not. However, our great and mighty God is the ultimate multitasker. Among all the amazing multitasking things that God does is seeing all of time 
as one eternal now, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, all at once. Chew on this declaration from God himself through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, beginning with verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. So what does scripture tell us about God? Declaring, declaring the end from the beginning, speaking these things into existence. So though God in his grace interacts with us constantly in time, and thank God for that, God also stands outside of time in eternity. He sees the whole course of human history, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And in this vast, amazing understanding, God somehow takes the free choices of his creatures, that's us, and he accomplishes his plans and his purposes in his perfect timing. It's interesting to note some of the things that science has begun to discover about time over the last 50 to 100 years. Some of these things might actually help us understand just a bit more the awesomeness of God and his relationship to time. You know who Albert Einstein is, right? The theory of relativity. It revolutionized science and specifically revolutionized the science of physics. And he was said to have thought as a boy that he wished that he were a creature who could ride on a beam of light. He was fascinated by light. He was fascinated by light's properties. Physics is beyond most of us. Maybe some of you understand it way more than I do. But even a modest grasp of what Einstein learned about the relationship of light to time is worth pondering briefly this morning. And hopefully you'll see the connection as we move along. It's worth thinking about because even though it requires a bit of speculation, and I will clearly label things that are speculative and not meant to be doctrine from Scripture, okay? It is godly and biblically based speculation, and it excites my imagination. I hope it excites yours too. So stick with me here for a few minutes. I drew some of this thinking from a great little book I read some years ago by a a writer named Ellen Vaughn. She used to write books with Charles Coulson, and the book is called Time Peace. And I'll have a few quotes from this book, but some of the ideas are from it as well. One aspect of the theory of relativity developed by Einstein suggests that the closer you get to the speed of light, which is 670 million miles per hour, the more time actually slows down. Now, there's a lot of science fiction movies that use that idea as part of the plot of the movie, okay? The theory is that time actually stops advancing once you actually reach the speed of light. Now, it is just a theory because science can't absolutely prove it. But it brings up a fascinating question for us as believers when we compare this truth to what Scripture tells us about our great God. So in essence, Ellen Vaughn writes, a being who could ride a light beam, as in Einstein's fanciful daydreams of his youth, would not age at all. For a being who moves at the speed of light, time would not move. This being would exist in an eternal now. 
This ageless being, moving at the speed of light, existing in eternity, might he, to some degree, be light. Think about that. Let's look at some of what the Bible tells us about God in Scripture. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. In James 1.17, we read that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Are you getting the connection here? Uh, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In him was life, speaking of Jesus, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John chapter 3, verse 19, tells us that the light has come into the world. And when we read about Jesus being transfigured, you remember the story of the transfiguration? In Matthew 17, too, what does it tell us? He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. We also see this in Paul's Damascus Road experience. You remember when Jesus appeared to Paul. How did he appear to him? As a bright light. It was so bright it blinded him. And then in the book of Revelation, we read this, speaking of eternity. And night will be no more. There will, be, there will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, of course, again, let's be careful. God is light is not a total description of God, any more than God is love or God is just, or God is patient, or God is merciful. All these things are true of God, but none of them encompass him. He's too big to be described with one word or one phrase. Yet think about this. If we're someday living in the light of God in heaven, as we just read in Revelation, we're dwelling with eternity in eternity. From our perspective, will it be that time stops? Or maybe just time goes on forever from our limited perspective? How much of our sin-clouded minds now keep us from seeing this that we'll be able to see in that moment in eternity? Maybe time goes on forever, but there'll be no more waiting. There'll be no more waiting. Since hope always involves waiting, it seems logical to me that all of our hopes are then fulfilled. Huh? Think about this. Either way, we'll be in eternity with him, the author and creator of light itself, the one who is described in his word, revealing who he is, revealing his character to us. He's described as light. I don't know about you. That's amazing to me, folks. By the light of the Lamb, we will walk, Scripture tells us, and there will be no night. So in Christ, in eternity, we are made by his light into eternal beings. Now, Scripture only tells us that we'll have a resurrection body. Scripture also hints that it will be much like the resurrection body that Jesus walked in for 40 days before his ascension into heaven. So it's hard to say with any certainty 
from what Scripture tells us that in heaven, where the only light we'll need is the light of Jesus himself, that we'll actually be light too. So I'm not saying that. That's pure speculation. But we will be eternal. We will be eternal beings. Paul tells us in Corinthians that we'll have imperishable bodies. And if we're not somehow transformed into some form of light, we will at the very least be equipped and enabled in our resurrection bodies to go along for the ride, perhaps at the speed of light, which makes time stop. So I don't know. Again, this is speculation. It's not doctrine. But if the implications of Einstein's theory of relativity survive the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, perhaps we can get just a hint of what God has created for our eternal existence in those resurrection bodies that exist with God in eternity. These are glimpses into the awesome nature of the amazing God that we serve. The cross of Christ is the intersection of time and eternity. And the cross is the place we must meet him, the place we must truly know God first and foremost. So if we think about all this stuff, okay, head hurting time over, let's think about how this all applies. What are these realities about God's fullness of time? What do these realities about God's perfect timing have to do with us? Is there any application here? Or is this just really interesting, fascinating information to think about? Now, I believe there is much very clear application in these biblical truths, even though we have to admit we can't fully grasp these things. One application is that what we do today in time matters for eternity. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then we can rest in him when we seek him first in his righteousness because all these things, all the things we need are given to us. But what does that have to do with time? Priorities. It's about priorities. Jesus said what? Seek first. That means in time, before anything else. That means in time, spending more time, prioritizing our time, doing the seeking of him than anything else. Without time, nothing is first, middle, or last, or more important. In time, we do have priorities, and these are exhibited by how we spend our time. Jesus said his kingdom and his righteousness are to be our priorities. We are to seek those first in time. Every choice we make, every deed we do is important today because when we seek first his kingdom, these acts are somehow used by God to fill up the time. And someday time will be full and Jesus will return to bring an end to time as we know it. So we are stewards, my brothers and sisters. We are stewards, we are managers of this part of God's creation called time. Just as we're to be stewards of other parts of God's creation. For example, the material resources he provides. That's how we most often think about stewardship, the things he provides us, the material, the money, our stuff. Or the creation he's given us to enjoy. We're to be stewards of that as well. A steward doesn't own anything. A steward just manages it. So if you think of it that way, we know that and we've heard that in connection with our money, right? 
But it's never just my time. Any more than it's ever just my money or my things. So though it might seem to be maybe one of the least productive ways we can spend our time, the pursuit of God is beyond doubt way more important than any of the other things in our lives that we pursue that tend to crowd out time for God. In order to stay tethered to a real understanding of God, we have to use time to seek him as he really is. Since he is so beyond us, this can't be done quickly. Discerning the holy God requires concentration and attentiveness. If we grab God on the run, like a bagel, our conception of him shrinks to carry out size. And if our God is too small, we end up eventually in the grip of ridiculous idols. As we consider how to manage our time, we can sometimes miss the big picture timeline of God's perfect plans, his timing, his purposes. And maybe that's the reason we believers don't always look any different from the world around us, because we're pursuing all the same things that they are. We have the same priorities that they have. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time and a place for everything. Later in that same chapter, it also tells us that we have eternity in our hearts. If you think about it, that means that as followers of Christ, we can't lose. It's a win-win for us. When life in this time, in the life we're living now, is going well, we can think as Matthew Henry wrote, it's all this and heaven too. But when life as it often is, is broken, filled with suffering, filled with pain, we can also know that we can have hope. We can persevere and it will end because someday the time will be full. The day will come when the final victory that Jesus won over sin and death will be experienced by those who are in Christ and will have all the time we need forever to enjoy it. So we must learn to use time wisely and the most wise thing we can do is to seek him first. If we are truly connected with this one who lives beyond time, we have a real choice in how we live in time. We can still choose every day to spend time with the Lord, to listen to him, to access, to truly take advantage of the means of grace that he's given us. Prayer, the word, fellowship with the saints, even what we're doing here today, listening to the word being preached and worshiping together. Or we can get distracted by seeking after other things, which is the opposite of what scripture calls redeeming the time. Another practical application to this understanding of God and the fullness of time is that we can trust him. We can trust him knowing that he has a plan and a purpose. If we're waiting or hoping for something, for anything, we can know that God is still filling the cup, so to speak. And when it's full, God will do what's for our good and for his glory. We can know that he sees the end from the beginning in fact, in a, really, in a very real sense, he is the beginning and the end. This is what we read in Revelation 21.6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The psalmist in uh, Psalm 31 verse 15 says, my times are in your hand. 
Do we believe God is who he says he is? Do we believe what his word reveals about him? Do we believe, as this verse from Revelation tells us, that he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end? Is he big enough to hold us in his hands as he holds time in his hands? Can we really trust him with our lives? Can we really trust him with our hopes? The same lives that are made up of the time that we have on this earth. Our lives, our time, our hopes all belong to him. If we do trust him, it helps to give us a completely different perspective about interruptions, about emergencies, about difficulties, even pain. Because if time truly is in his hands, then nothing is wasted. Nothing. If he is the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God, then he somehow orchestrates all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. His purpose, not yours. His purpose, not mine. But nevertheless, for our good, for your good, for my good, for our good even corporately, for the believer, for the one who's seeking first, that's his priority, God's kingdom, there's no such thing as wasted time. There's only full time hope. Hope all the time. And hope in the fullness of time, God's perfect timing. Hope in God who holds time in his hands, who fills up time to accomplish all of his purposes with perfect timing. You know, think about this. The biggest problem ever in world history, sin, has already come and has already been resolved. God has already written the happy ending. He's already broken the curse that has hung over us since Adam. What our eyes cannot now see, our ears cannot now hear, what our hearts cannot imagine now, our God is preparing for you and me. So what is the message from that? Trust him. Trust him. Love him. Hope and wait for the ending. So here's what I want to do this morning. As we think about this, here on the first Sunday of Advent, we got Christmas lights up, not here, but maybe at home, you see them in neighborhoods and such. When you look at Christmas lights this season, let's remember that the light has come into the world. And let's allow these truths that we've pondered deeply this morning to shape our attitudes, to shape our hearts, to shape our lives as we consider and celebrate the incarnation that took place in the fullness of time. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a great and mighty God that we can't even begin to ponder all these things and grasp all these things, but you give us enough, Lord, to trust you. You give us enough information to trust you, to trust your character, to trust your purposes to trust that your timing is always perfect, that there is such a thing as the fullness of time, not just in human history and these big things that we think about, Lord, but in our individual lives, that there is a fullness of time. So, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to wait with hope because you are trustworthy. And remember that hope is sure and certain with a trustworthy God. And that in the fullness of time, you will accomplish all things for our good 
and for your glory, that you have a plan, and your plan includes our good, and it includes your glory. We thank you for these things, Father, and we ask you to resonate them in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.